But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labour would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through our faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Uh, hello, everybody, and uh, great to be uh, here this morning with you. Um, do keep uh, 1 Thessalonians open. It'll be really helpful to follow along uh, in your Bible there. Uh, the COVID pandemic um, was, according to many, the greatest challenge that the world collectively has ever faced. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, that's what many people say. For about 12 months, it was basically the only thing that the world ever thought about, wasn't it? Um, I wake up in the morning to my alarm going off at 6.55 and the radio comes on and so the news is there. And so for however long it was, at least 12 months, probably more, my waking thoughts every morning were COVID. That's what life was like, wasn't it? And the answer to that great challenge of the COVID pandemic, of course, was the vaccine. Now, I know already there are different opinions going on in the room, but that's not my point to debate the merits of the vaccine or not. But that was the answer, wasn't it, for a long time. When will it be ready? Have you had your jab yet? Are you going to have your jab? What was it like? 
And the high priests of the nation, Whitty and Johnson, were only interested in getting that jab into as many people as they possibly could, it seemed. And schools and church buildings were mobilized, volunteers, even the army. Everything working together to face that one great challenge and the solution against it, which was to get an injection into your arm, protecting us against the very thing which we were meant to fear the most. Well, perhaps the greatest challenge the world is facing right now is something different to COVID. Certainly the deadliness of the disease and the importance of the vaccine seem to have waned a little bit. But what is the greatest challenge before us? Maybe as you think about that question, uh, all you can think about is something very much in, in the foreground, an immediate concern, exams this week. Uh, just surviving the week, getting through it in one piece. Maybe there's an appointment at the doctor's or a difficult meeting ahead of you, and that is dominating your thoughts. But whatever those pressing issues might be, if you were able to kind of step back from them and kind of zoom out for a moment, what would you say are the, the, the things which should be most on our minds? I wonder what kind of answers you would get if you asked the average person on the street. Maybe it's a case of fixing the economy. Maybe it's a case of kicking out the government. Maybe it's something to do with defeating Russia or China. Maybe it's something to do with preventing climate change. What are the great pressing issues of our day? Well, if we were to be able to hop into a TARDIS this morning and travel back in time to first century Greece and track down the Apostle Paul and find him at his desk with his quill in his hand, writing this letter to the Thessalonians. And if we were to ask him what his answer to that question is, what would he say? What should we be thinking about most of all? What, what should be in the forefront of our minds in this day and age, Paul? What would he say? Well, I wonder whether he might look us in the eye and say something like this. The number one priority for you Christians is to make sure that you are ready for the return of Jesus. That is a date, Paul says, which is fixed in God's calendar. It is going to happen. The countdown has begun. You need to make sure that you keep going until that day. Please, Paul would say, be ready. Live in the light of that day. Make that the thing that you wake up looking forward to and thinking about. If you know the book of 1 Thessalonians, you know that the return of Christ is one of its big themes. It's uh, there in our passage today a couple of times that we'll see later, but it runs through the whole of this book that he wrote to this group of, uh, of Christians. Paul was in Athens. Uh, they were up in the north of Greece, or Macedonia, in, um, in Thessaloniki. And uh, he's writing to them to encourage them. And from beginning to end, he's got the return of Christ in mind. It's there, for example, in chapter 1, verse 10, where he describes the Christian life as waiting for his son to return from heaven. The Christian life is about waiting for that day. It's there in chapter 3, verse 13, in, in the prayer which sits at the very center of the book and at the end of our passage, uh, where Paul says he wants us to be blameless at the coming of Jesus. 
It's there at the very end of the book with the prayer that finishes the book. It uses the same words. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 23, may you be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the day and the date and the thing which is in Paul's mind. And Paul might go on and and say, guys, I I want you to know that, that making it to the end will not be easy. The devil is at work trying to stop you from making it to the end. You might have noticed the devil got two mentions in our passage today. Paul is very, very aware of the work of the evil one. Life is going to be hard, Paul says. You're going to face opposition. In fact, he says to them, you're already facing opposition. And I know that means it's hard for you. You might be tempted to give up. So take this challenge seriously, Paul says. Keep going. Keep growing so that you're blameless on that last day till the end. So if you were to hear Paul say all of that, and if you agreed that that was important for you to take seriously as well, and if you were brave enough, you might fire a question back at him and say, okay, Paul, that that sounds really important, really serious. Tell me, what can I do to make sure I do make it till that day blameless? If this is the great challenge that I'm facing, that we're facing together, what should we do to make sure that we're ready, that we make it? And I think you might answer something like this. Well, first of all, that's the wrong question slightly. It's not so much what what can you do. Ask a different question. Ask, what's God going to do to keep you going till that day? That's a better place to start, I think. And And he would say that there's good news on that front because God is utterly committed to keeping you going to the end. And you might say, look at what I've already written to these guys in chapter 2 and verse 13. God has given you his word. Paul says there that they accepted the word of God as what it really was, the word of God. And he says, it is at work in you believers. It's the word of God, the message of God that saves you. You have believed it, and that word is still at work in new believers. That is a great promise, isn't it? That's why here we're committed to being a Bible church, keeping the Bible central, keeping the good news about Jesus that we find in these pages central, knowing that they are God's word and not therefore trying to change them or improve them as if we could. So, when Paul told us about that, we might say, great, that's wonderful. Now I know what I need to do to keep going to the end. I need to hear God's word. I need to believe it and receive it and know that it's in work in me, at work in me. Would that be the end of the conversation? Well, no. Paul would actually stop us and say, that's not all you need to know to keep going to the end. I've got more to say. At the risk of tiptoeing towards heresy, it's not enough to be a Bible church. Paul might say, the Christian life is not like getting a series of COVID jabs. You don't just line up and get a dose of the gospel, and and perhaps like you do in the the COVID uh, uh, vaccine clinic, speak to some people uh, while you're waiting. But then once the jab's in you, off you go, job done. The Christian life is not like that. Church is not like that. In some churches, 
uh, that wouldn't call themselves Bible churches, they might say it's not a dose of the Bible that you need, it's a dose of communion that you need. Or it's a dose of a worship experience that you need. And once you've got your dose, job done, off you go. But that's not what it's like. There is another thing in God's wonderful plans that he has given us to keep us going to the end. I wonder if you've spotted what it is already. You probably have. It's people. God has given us people with whom we are to have deep and distinctively Christian relationships of love and affection. He's given us people with whom we are to have deep and distinctively Christian relationships of love and affection, the kind of love and affection that he has already talked about in this book when he's described himself as a, as a nursing mother and a, and a father, affectionate and loving to these people. It's not enough to be a Bible church. We must be a people church too. Love. We heard about love last week from John 13, didn't we? Love is a sign to the outside world out there that we are Jesus' disciples when we love one another. But relationships of deep, committed love for one another are what keeps us going as Christians too. And these few paragraphs of this letter give us a beautiful glimpse of what true, deep Christian relationships are like. It's as if Paul's quill, as he scrapes away on his papyrus, is not just writing a letter, it's, it's, it's more like a paintbrush, painting a portrait for us, depicting God's plan for keeping us growing and going all the way till the day that Jesus returns. And the subjects of this portrait that he's painting are Paul and the Thessalonians and their relationship, and we can learn much from them. Paul is writing because he's away from them at the moment, Um, And he's wanting to encourage them. But some people have been calling into question whether or not he really does love them because he is not with them. You know, he'd only been with them for about four weeks. And they'd become Christians, but then he'd had to leave the city and they hadn't heard from him since. And so perhaps niggling doubts were beginning to creep in. Was this guy really for us? He's just up, up sticks and, and, and left, and other people were perhaps saying, actually, you should listen to me instead. Forget about Paul. I, I, I'm your teacher now. So in this section today, he's writing to reassure them that he is still very much connected to them. If you look down in your Bibles, the first three paragraphs of our passage take us through Paul's kind of journey of emotions. The first at the end of chapter 2 there, verse 17 to 19, um, describe what, uh, what Paul was feeling when he was separated from them. Then in the next paragraph, at the beginning of chapter 3, what he did about it in sending Timothy to find out how they were. And then thirdly, in verse 6 to 10, how he responded when Timothy came back from his trip and told Paul that they were doing really well. So that's kind of how those first three paragraphs are structured. Let's summarize uh, what Paul is saying in them in two main points. Firstly, we'll see the evidence of Paul's deep connection to this church, the evidence of Paul's deep connection to the church. Yes, Paul says in verse 17, I haven't been with you, but that wasn't my decision. I was, I was torn away from you. And imagine that feeling when, when something inside you is kind of ripped apart and you can feel it ripping and it's, it's horrible and it's, pain, it's painful. It's that sense in the original language of being orphaned, of, of, uh, uh, um, of parents being separated from their children. It's a painful word, torn away from you. I was... I was torn away against my will, but my heart never 
left you. And I have been trying to get back to you ever since, Paul says. Being with them is so important that Paul sees it as the work of the devil, Satan himself, to stop it. Then in the next paragraph, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, Paul says that, that he went to painful lengths to do something about his separation from them. Um, some of you have sent your children to university. Imagine being a parent, and this is probably what some of you older folk, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular, at, at what actually happened, but imagine sending your child to university without a mobile phone, without any internet, without any means of contacting them to find out how they were doing. Off they go into the big, bad, scary world out there, and what do you do? You worry about them, don't you? Incessantly. You wait for days, and you wait for weeks, and you don't really get a sense of how they're doing at all. Back in, in, in my day when I went to university, I had these corridor phones in the university halls of residence, and they would be endlessly ringing, and no one would ever answer them, because the students, the students were having fun, and there the parents were ringing the phone, and no one answered. Imagine what that was like. Eventually, as the days and the weeks and the time went on, you would have to do something about it, wouldn't you? You would get into the car and you would drive up yourself, armed with some washing tablets and some food and some money, and you would make sure they were okay. Well, so it was with Paul. When we could bear it no longer, he says, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We had to do something about it. Timothy was perhaps uh, Paul's most uh, trusted sidekick, but eaten up with worry, he was willing to sacrifice the blessings of Timothy's company and help for several weeks, presumably, to, presumably, to send Timothy on this mission to them. And then when Timothy returned from his long journey and returned with good news, verse 6, well, the relief and the joy just spills out of Paul, doesn't it? The comfort as he describes it in verse 7. It's like balm to his soul, knowing that these guys are doing well, that they still hold him in the same affection that he holds them in. Um, that phrase at the beginning of verse 6 there, uh, where it says, but now, in the original language, has that sense of just this very minute, Timothy has got back. It's as if Timothy has walked in the door, given a good report, and, and Paul has dropped everything else and just gone straight for his desk drawer and grabbed his papyrus and his quill out and scribbled this, this letter out to them. It's the first thing he had to do. That's how much he loved them. That's how much he cared. So verse 9, he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for all of you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. Um, here's one uh, geeky little fact for you. The word that's translated in verse 6 there as good news is the very same word, gospel. That's interesting, isn't it? What is the best news in the world? It's the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again and reigns in glory and will be with him one day. The gospel that the Thessalonians are doing well Paul is able to use the same word. That's how good news it was. Paul is clear 
I am deeply connected to you guys. I am for you. I am with you. I love you deeply in my heart. But why? Why is Paul so deeply connected emotionally to them? Let's look at that in our second point, the reason for Paul's deep connection to the church. And there are just two phrases worth picking out to help us see that. Uh, look uh, to chapter 2 and verse 19. Each of these phrases are explaining phrases. Or phrases. They begin with for or because. And the first one is, is there in verse 19. Uh, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Why do I care so much about you? Why do I want to be with you so much? Because when Jesus returns, there's Paul's fixation with that day again. When Jesus returns, the thing that is most going to excite him on that day is the fact that the Thessalonians will be there. Chew on that one for a moment. It's amazing, isn't it? Back in Roman times, uh, when a king visited a city, the people of the city would prepare for that visit by working together and clubbing together to present a gift to the king, to kind of express their, um, uh, their honoring of the king and to kind of show him the, the, the evidence that this was a good, healthy city, to show him the best of the city. And traditionally, that gift would be a crown. And that's the language that Paul uses here. It would be a, a beautiful, expensive crown, something that the city folk would give to the king with pride with a beaming smile, saying, this represents our city. We honor you with this. That's the idea that Paul may well be picking up on in that language there. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before Jesus when he comes back? It's you guys. Um, if Paul had had an Instagram feed, I'm fairly sure that he didn't, and I would even love to say that if he was alive now, he wouldn't. But I don't know if I can be quite that bold as to say that for definite. But if he did, it would be full of pictures and memories, not of himself, but of, the, of these guys. There'll be very little of Paul on his own social media. He'd be showing off these guys, saying, look at them. Aren't they great? I love them. The second phrase to pick out is in chapter 3 and verse 8, another word, another sentence beginning with because. Why, why were we so glad to hear this good report when Timothy came back? Because, verse 8, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's as if Paul's life is on hold while he waits for news about how they're doing. If the news is bad, it'll, it's as if it will be like death to Paul. And if the news is good as it was... Now he lives, it's life to him. For Paul, life is not about breathing oxygen and eating food. Life is knowing that they're okay. It's like an umbilical cord going from them to him. And for the whole time he's been away from them, it's like the cord has been clamped shut. But now the clamp has been released and life is flowing to Paul again through it. Such is the, the depth and intimacy of connection in this relationship. And it's all built on this concern for their spiritual well-being. The certainty, the immovability of their faith in the gospel. Now and all the way to the end when Jesus returns. 
the language he uses in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 2 there, and 3. It's as if they're living in a persistent, chronic kind of earthquake of, of suffering and affliction, and, and the devil is, is tempting them. And Paul wants them not to be moved by this earthquake, not to be unsettled, but to be established, to stand fast and firm, to keep going in the faith. And as he says in verse 10, to keep growing as well in the faith. So, deep, distinctively Christian, loving relationships. A picture for us. With all that in mind, let me really, really briefly outline a few suggestions about what that might look like for us. Um, I've got a few suggestions, but just a couple of sentences on each, really. And all of these begin with an S sound to make it easier for you. So first, here's the first thing. What might it look like for us to uh, display and cultivate deep, distinctively Christian relationships like this? First one is saying that you love one another. I don't think there's anything more precious than those words. The Thessalonians needed to hear them from Paul, didn't they? It was a comfort and a help to them. And we need to hear them from one another too. Yet often they're unsaid, aren't they? Often they're said. And let me tell you, that uh, the encouragements in, in my life, the, 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 the top ones are when people say, I care for you, I love you. And words of encouragement like that. There's lots of that that goes on, but often we don't say it, do we? And one simple way to apply uh, what we've seen in this passage is just to, to be regular and uh, extravagant and, and liberal in, in our encouraging language to one another, saying, yes, I'm with you, I care for you, I love you. Saying that you love one another. Secondly, spending time with one another. Writing a letter was important for Paul. It was great, it was useful, but it was nothing compared to being with them. It was nothing compared to sending Timothy to be with them. And we, the post-COVID generation of all people, should know the value of being with people physically. We, the generation who most clearly see the damage caused by social media, the disconnection caused by social media, should be the ones fighting most fiercely to preserve the preciousness of time together. So a question for us is, do we believe that we need to be with one another? Do I believe that I need to be with you? Do you believe that you need to be with other people? Do we live as if that's true? So maybe one simple and practical thing to do, applying this uh, passage is to put our phones down and get our diaries out and plan some time with other people. The third one, sacrificing your comfort for the sake of others. That's what Paul describes in chapter 3, verse 1, isn't it? Sacrificing his own comfort for the sake of them. So maybe getting that diary out will feel painful. Sacrificing some comfort time, some me time, will be a real sacrifice. But wouldn't it be a wonderful sign of these deep, distinctively Christian relationships amongst us if it became normal for us to give up those things for the sake of others? If that was what we found ourselves doing as a matter of course... Again, there is loads and loads of that that goes on, and we should rejoice when we see it and, and see it as God at work amongst us. Rejoice when others do it for you and say thank you to them, acknowledge it. 
Uh, the next one, seeing one another in the light of Jesus' return. Seeing one another in the light of Jesus' return. I wouldn't specifically ask you to do this, but if you were to turn to the person next to you and look at them, they're not just a person sitting next to you this morning. They're also a person that will be standing with you side by side when Jesus comes back. Can we see people in that way? Would that change the way that we see one another? Imagine standing side by side with those people at the return of Jesus, their face radiating with his glory just as yours is as you both gaze at him. The moment you've been waiting for. Our relationships ought to involve seeing one another like that. Talking about that day with one another and pointing one another towards it. Next one, sharing. It's not quite a sus sound, but it begins with an S. Sharing the word of God. What did Timothy do when he visited them, do you think? When he arrived after his long journey down from the south in Athens, uh, arrived up north, what did he bring with him? Did he bring some hugs? I bet he did. Some kisses, I think, is what they did in those days. Did he bring some cups of tea? I bet he did, or whatever the equivalent was. And Those are great, aren't they? Uh, but that wasn't the most important thing that he brought. He came to establish and exhort them in their faith. He came with the word of God. And here we've come full circle, haven't we, from the beginning. How will God keep us going to the end? By the word of God at work in us and through people, people who love us, people who know that they're connected to one another, people who share the word of God with one another, reminding one another of it, exhorting one another to keep believing and trusting and let it do its work. So it's not enough to be a Bible church. It's not enough to be a people church. I don't think this phrase will catch on, but we should want to be a Bible-y, people-y church. I'll trademark it if it does. A Bible-y, people-y church. It's both together, isn't it? We cannot separate them. Finally, seeking the Lord in prayer. It's a bit of an FS. It should just be a P, praying for one another. Perhaps the most important one of all, the most obvious one perhaps even, so I've left it till last. Notice that that's what Paul prays for in verse 11 to 13. He completely mirrors these priorities. His desire to be with them in verse 11. His desire for them to be ready when Jesus returns in verse 13. And the way that that happens in verse 12 is that their love for one another increases and abounds. I hope that the fact that you see Paul praying that that would happen is an encouragement to you. Any sermon that has prayer as an application point has a danger of making us feel guilty, doesn't it? Because we know we don't pray enough. Um, but I hope it's an encouragement. Paul prays for it because he knows that it is only a, a work that only God can do. If you're, like, if you're anything like me, there are aspects to this kind of Christian life where part of me just recoils from it because I know it will be painful. I know my heart doesn't always want these things. I would quite like more me time. The idea of being an island, a rock self-sufficient and self-secure is attractive to me because it offers me a life with none of the pain of relating in this way to other people. We can look at our church and there are countless encouragements amongst us and at the same time we know that we don't love one another as we should. 
And we can't manufacture that ourselves either. Rosa and I were going to bake a cake yesterday, and we couldn't do it because we didn't have the ingredients, and I could not just magic them up. Similarly, I do not have the ingredients within me to create this kind of love within me, and you don't have them in you either. We cannot do it, but the Lord can. That's what he says, isn't it? That's why Paul prays it. Verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And so that's why we pray for one another and pray for ourselves that the Lord would do this work in us so that until he returns, we will keep going and keep growing to the praise of his name. I'm going to pray using the words of verses 11 to 13, just slightly amended um, as we close. Our dear Heavenly Father, please, our God and Father, and our Lord Jesus, please would you overrule the work of Satan, who will do all he can to hinder our corporate life together. And instead, please make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that you may please establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at your coming in glory with all of your saints. Amen.